want to welcome everybody to this evening's Marin Report. I'm looking forward to my night's, tonight's guest. But before we begin, I've got to mention a few things. The the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsor, affiliate, or anybody else. I'm here to tell you, big big times around here. I know last week I kind of reported the prediction show being this week. Of course, that wasn't necessarily my fault. I'm going to blame Germantown Runner because he is the producer of the show and he fed me bad information last week. And it falls on the first Tuesday in November which is election night. That's why I do predictions on election night, because predicting the next year seems so much more fun than actually talking about the election. Okay, enough bad jokes about the election. I think every one of us will be happy to see it go until it comes back again. It's a bad, bad thing. But my guest tonight, well, I kind of wanted to step away from the election, but I kind of came back into it. Well, I think by the time the show is over tonight, you'll understand what I'm saying. My guest tonight is Andrew Pryor, fiction writer. I should point that out up off the top so nobody gets too bent out of shape. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I'm very well, Jim. How are you? Doing pretty good. Uh, you're north of me, so are you ready for the next season? I am. You know, I live in, uh, I'm looking uh, out my window in my office right now um, at the, you know, the, the bank towers of downtown Toronto. So we are. Uh, of course, the biggest city in Canada, but we are very interested, you know, watching very closely um, current events in the United States. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure I, I know because I've, I've seems I'm gonna I'm gonna say this on air and it's gonna I'm gonna get hate mail for it. But a large portion of my engaged listenership there, I said it nicely, is from Canada, which I don't understand. Of course, I'm from Western oh. Pennsylvania, so I'm kind of. Almost your neighbor to the south, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. But it, it does fascinate me because there are there are states in the union that I've only ever had a handful of downloads from, and I, I get tons more email from Canada than the actual downloads in like Wyoming, the Dakotas, which surprises right. me. <clears throat> well, the thing about the thing about Canada, you know, just just as an aside here, is that uh, we. Um, we look outside, like we, 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 we're always looking outside the window, looking at the world. I mean, we're more or less happy to fly under the radar, which allows us to look out the window more. So yeah, we're interested in a bunch of stuff. As, as the joke goes that I often tell people that like the aliens are watching us as a reality show. So kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I mean, honestly, if I wasn't living here, I think I'd have to pay attention to it anyways, because it does get a little... Yeah, reality-based TV. Yeah, that's about the only way to classify that. So, now you have this new book out. I, I will get there, I promise. But I want to save that for a few minutes because I, I, I need to get some backstory on you first before we get to there because I, I think sure. we have to mosey the path up to that instead of starting there and moseying back because I think by understanding a little bit more about you, like I think we kind of already started there, Understanding that you have an interest in the United States kind of starts there. So tell, take me back. What, when did you decide to become a writer? I guess is my first question. Well, okay. Well, this is, this will, you know, this is a, take me way back, but I was always, um, always interested in storytelling. I was always writing, you know, from, uh, even before I could write, I, I remember, um, my understanding is that kids uh, at public schools anyway around here now aren't ta taught um, handwriting anymore. But I, I remember, um, you know, having those treble, almost like sort of like those musical lines drawn on the chalkboard. You know, the teacher would draw those treble, it looked like, a you know, those sort of five lines. And in between those lines, you'd learn how to draw, you know, handwriting. And the capital letters went from the bottom to the top and the, and the smaller letters went halfway. And I was entranced by it i remember writing in the air handwriting in the air and writing stories at my family dinner table and it would drive my mother crazy she she knew i was you know sort of writing these stories about probably about her and <laughs> i would have this imaginary pen and be writing it in the air and she had had a, a an imaginary eraser and would go around following me and like rubbing out my words in the air saying like you're polluting the air so she was my she was my first sort of censor, I guess, my first critic. And but I was I was obsessed. I was obsessed in a very quiet, I think healthy way with storytelling right from the get go. But I never thought, you know, through high school, university, I never um I never sort of envisioned it as a career. I never thought, how do I 
how do I make a living at this? And that maybe be maybe in part um, my Canadianness that that we you know there weren't the same models of um, self sufficient fiction writers who made their living based on sales alone up here as there as there you know has always been in the United States commercial writers and um, so I was but nevertheless still writing went to university studied English. That was fun. Got a master's degree in English. That was also fun, but it, the fun has to come to an end. I was like, okay, look, you got to get a job. And I went to law school. I went to law school uh, here at the University of Toronto and recognized pretty early on that I didn't want to practice law. I was like, you know, this just this doesn't feel quite right. And uh, that's an understatement. And <laughs> I've talked to and, enough attorneys on this show to know that I've talked to you for all of where's the little countdown clock? Uh, seven minutes now, and I know you're not an attorney by trade. <laughs> <laughs> it shows. It shows, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, as soon as I, I, but I finished it. You know, I did that whole. You know, you never quit. My my parents were always like, you never. You know, when you start something, you never quit, which is terrible advice. But I I, I followed it. Was called to the bar. And then moved to a smaller town outside of the city and wrote a novel. And it was more of a, um, you know, a satisfaction of a desire than it was a business plan. There was no sense that, okay, here we go. Now I'm going to start, you know, writing novels for a living. It was just something I always wanted to do. And that first novel, Lost Girls, uh, very fortunately was sold here in Canada, the United States and the UK and, and foreign rights. And there was movie rights sold. And, and all of a sudden, I went from being a bartender in a small town outside of Toronto to um, being able to do this full time. And that was 1998. And so I've been able to write fiction full time since then. That's the that's the course of what's allowed me to do this thing that, again, I, I never expected to be able to do. Which, fast, that's why I want to get there first, because I think that kind of lays the groundwork for, I mean, how I... I Normally look this up, and I always lose count anyways, but you've got... I, okay, I'm going to guess. Don't hate me, because I'm going to guess. Sure. Uh, what is it, 10 books out? Ah, bingo, you hit it. Wow, that that's... Normally I even count them, and uh, the author's like, no, there's a couple more that you missed. And I'm like... <laughs> yeah, no, you got it. <laughs> yeah, I got it. So, that okay, so let's go back to those very early days. Um, you're working full-time at a bar, living in a small town. You're writing uh, probably... Late, really late at night or really early in the afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually writing, like pen to paper writing. No, I was. It was. It was. Uh, I think my unit, my computer was like one of those early Mac classics. You know, it was like a, a computer in a box, and uh, I would. I was then and continue to be a an obsessive uh, note taker. So I always had. Um, a notebook and pen with me and I would take notes and, and observations and stuff like that. But when I was sitting down at the desk, it would have been at the computer. It fascinates me. So were you all, okay, I guess the next, I love digging in the writers and their process because I, I absolutely can't write. So maybe that's why. <laughs> you know, there's uh, people on the show, have, I mean, the listeners to the show have come to learn that I can't meditate because I can't sit still long enough to do it. And I, I have a great affinity for writers because I can't do that either. So if it seems I'm getting full-blown nerdy on you, I, I just love the insights because as I, I think you understand it's an art and you've got to practice to get better at it. So I keep trying to learn as much as I can because I am trying to be a better writer. And it's trying. Mm-hmm. Both ways you can you, you understand the, the English <laughs> in that. And uh, so when, when you sat down to write... I've, when you write in fiction, now see that seems unbelievably hard to me because I'm just trying to write, you know, technically sound stuff about the show and this, that, and the other. But you get these cast of characters. Now, how does that work for you? Oh, it's a it's a juggling show. I mean, it, it's um, you know, I've been as you as you've correctly guessed, you know, I'm ten ten novels into this career. Um, you'd sort of think I'd, I'd learned a few things, and I guess in, in some respects I have, um, but they're not as much as you may guess or expect. You know, every book is a new um, puzzle, and you, you, you sort of forget overnight all the things that you presume to have learned in the previous books. And so 
characters, you know, you mentioned in particular, but you know, they're they're part of the part of the puzzle. But it's it's almost like, um, what I guess what, what I would boil it down to is what I've learned to be wary of is that feeling that oh, I've got an idea for a book that comes very suddenly and it presents itself initially as this whole thing like you know here's here's your new book and uh you you know you you start you start into it and you realize wait a minute no uh this is a premise maybe but i don't really know the characters i don't like what is this story really about and and then there's then there's i've come to learn you know not to get too deep into this but i i, I now kind of think of the aboutness of a story as having two or three levels of depth to it. So there's the about of like, here's the synopsis. Here's what the story is about. Then there's a, here's what the story is kind of really about the one level below. It actually has this thematic meaning that's somewhat different and, and, and deeper than the superficial about. And then there's like another, maybe one or two deeper levels of aboutness that you kind of come to understand or, or, or encounter as you're writing it. So long way of saying, um, it's a, I, 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 I'm a big outliner and I do that. And I think about the story a lot before I begin because I've run a, I've run my ship aground, uh, a few times when I start too early and it's not because it's a bad story. It's not because it's a bad idea. It's because I haven't fully kind of thought through or considered all of the aspects of the story in advance. And, and I think that's why a lot of amateur or, 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 or people who are, you know, writing for the first time, that's why they have a tough time of it. Again, it's not because they're bad writers. It's not because their idea is, is poor. It's because they start too early. So flip this the other direction for me, because I know this is, because as I'm thinking, this is probably just as true on the other side of it. Um, not knowing when to stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's especially true. So that's true on the one level of of, of a manuscript. You know, it's like, well, I'm I'm 180,000 words in, and I'm, you know, I think I'm now ready to start. <laughs> right. <laughs> we 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 know. You know, I think we we've either you know we've either read books where it felt like that, or we've heard that account from writers. But I think it's also a lot a lot of the time it's it's research and preparation that if people are writing a book about either uh whether it's a, perhaps a memoir or autobiography or a history or it's a fiction that's based on history that they get so deep into the research and it can be very fascinating and satisfying on that level alone just just learning something and they become essentially phds in some corner of expertise where they, you know, you know what, you needed maybe 8% of that. And meanwhile, you've spent three years learning all of this ephemera. And there has to be a, I think for a fiction writer in particular, there has to be a real, real tactical question of like, what do I need? What do I need to tell this story? Let's get in and get out. You don't have to be, an, uh, you know, a bona fide expert. You don't have to uh, uh, you know, sort of be a PhD in this. You just need to know enough to tell what the story, you know, to tell the story that you have in mind and to tell it plausibly. So one more deep history question before we bridge forward a little bit. Uh, you've got the first book completed and then what? Because this is obvious. You said you got it published. So how many, how many times did you send it out and how did that process go for a guy who's never been there and then that? Oh, I, I was very, it was a very un unusual and atypical um, scenario. So pre previous to the first novel, I had published a collection of short stories with a small press here in Ontario and Canada. So um, that was, you know, that was an, uh, a deal to the extent that you could call it that, um, that was arranged through one of the editors of a small university journal that had published a couple of my short stories. And he unbeknownst to me forward some of my work to an editor at a small press and he contacted me and, and said we want to publish this book and I was delighted uh, the advance was enough to buy like a case of beer and uh, you know but I was as proud as could be and when I embarked on the novel again I was sort of I, I, there there wasn't really a sort of a plan of publication or anything of that kind and I had in the meantime though 
was approached by an agent who, on the on the basis of the short story collection, approached me and said, I'd like to be your agent. And I told her, well, that's great, but I've got nothing for you to sell. And she said, well, no, you will. And and I thought, I think she's wrong. But a couple years later, I said, well, here's this book I wrote. It's a novel. And it was, it was even to my mind, it was like a, kind of a strange um, hybrid of genres. It was in part a murder mystery. Um, it was in part a ghost story. It was in part a thriller. Um, and that actually, just as, as an aside, uh, it, that was kind of laying out the DNA for my fiction kind of going forward. I, I, I sort of, you know, unselfconsciously specialize in books that kind of combine genres. But anyway, I gave her this book and she said, wow, you know, I, I love this. I don't really know how to describe it either, but let's give it a shot. And within a week, I remember on the Monday, I went around uh, the town that I was living in at that time. I, I just powered through the last of my things that I had saved from my year work uh, articling in, in Ontario. You, you work for a year as a sort of a trainee lawyer. And so I was living on the savings from that. That was gone. So I was sending out my resume around town to be a, a bartender again. And on the Monday, uh, my agent called and said, well, we sell, we sold Canadian rights. On the Tuesday, she called to say, oh, we have a two book offer um, in the States. And, the, and on Wednesday, uh, she called to say, we have a two book offer in the UK. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then by the beginning of the next week, we had a, a movie option with Universal Pictures. And so, I mean, you know, that's one of those I've never repeated quite that, you know, seven day blowout. But that 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 changed everything. And, and, it, and it, in the sense of not just sort of, oh, here's a bunch of here's a bunch of money. You don't have to be a bartender. But it was uh, it, it sort of it showed me, oh, wait a minute, you can do this. Now, it's very hard to sustain that, but you can make a living writing fiction. And so that became that became the rabbit I was running after and have been running after ever since. Yeah, well, I think you, you've channeled that rabbit and you've done pretty well for yourself. Okay, before we shift gears, where can people find you and find the books before we start moving into more of these different books and where we're headed today? Oh, sure. Um, so probably the, you know, the, 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 the best depot to go to would be my website, www.andrewpiper. And my last name is P-Y-P-E-R. So it's andrewpiper.com. Um, and there you'll find information, biography, uh, you know, sort of uh, buy links and stuff like that. And I'm also um, fairly active in saying all sorts of nonsense on Twitter. And that's uh, at Andrew Piper. Again, A-N-D-R-E-W-P-Y-P-E-R. You know, I, I post those, like it's on my, my video screen. But I, I've never actually said that was on Twitter. I, I've got my name, at Mallard. Like, I just assume people know what the at sign it means on on Twitter, but that's just because my bias, I'm there all the time too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should clear that up for people who were wondering. Sorry, not sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you get through that first bit of, um, good stuff, but I'm sure you have to come back to earth because you set a two book deal at that at one point there in that process. So now you, I mean, you still have to get back to work to make yourself a success at this. So was the second one harder? I mean, was it harder once you became, I don't want to say a success, but you've had sold something in now we're uh, had more pressure to do it. I guess it's easy way to put it. Yeah. You know, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I didn't, um, at the time I didn't, perceive it as pressure uh and, and but looking back now i see i don't sort of like feel pressure in, you know sort of um you know in hindsight but i i do see oh wait a minute there were expectations and i just sort of thought oh i i'm just going to write whatever i want and 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 that's what i largely have pursued um but my second novel was quite different from the first it didn't have um the same kind of mystery aspect to it. it. It didn't. It didn't share the same ground. It was quite a different book, and and, and I think you know in many respects a less a less likable book a, or a harder book to love. And 
that was a lesson, and, and it was you know it was, it was it was published at a high level and, and reasonably well reviewed. But people didn't you know didn't buy it as as, as in great as numbers, and didn't like it as much. And that was a real education in, in um, oh, you even if you sort of recognize of like okay, you, you we recognize your talent, we like what you're able to do. Here, here's some money. Continue to do it. That doesn't mean you get to do it at the same level of success. You know, <laughs> as obvious as that ought to be, it wasn't obvious to me. And so um, that's not to say that I adjusted my my play as I went forward. I mean, I, I continued to kind of follow my own inclinations for better or for worse. Uh, I didn't. I still don't have kind of a, a real super clear brand. In the sense of I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the werewolf guy, or I'm like I, I'm always spies. I'm the spy guy. There's no clear kind of brand of that sort. But, um, the, you know, to answer your question, you know, that 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 second book was an education in, oh, you know, you can you can do what you want, but it doesn't mean people are going to go with you, and and that then that invited the question. So should I think about that more? Should I think about writing to an audience? Should I define my audience and then write to them? Or no, should I just sort of, you know, just sort of insanely follow my own my own lead? And, um, you know, again, for better or for worse, I kind of went with the latter. Yeah, I, I think you have to blaze your own path no matter where it goes. I guess that's part of the bias of the show that I've got going on. You just kind of follow where it goes, and some people love it, and some people hate it. And I see my chatters are talking about handwriting, and I've got news for you. Mine isn't great. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, you said you practice a lot. Did you get good at it? I mean, I guess that's kind of subjective, right? Right. Everything, but... Well, I dropped out so early that um, it, you know, my my um, evaluate, you know, evaluating myself as a lawyer is 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 sort of like sort of you know trying to evaluate, you know, a sixteen year old as to you know, <laughs> you know, would would he have been a great hockey player in the NHL? Um, but I was good enough and promising enough that I got some really good job offers to join. Um, in particular, the most tempting offer I got was to join what was at that time the most elite criminal defense uh, firm here in Toronto. And, uh, and and I, you know, my, my roommate at that time was, uh, I think, quite envious of me because he really genuinely wanted to be a criminal lawyer. And he was like, oh, you don't understand. Like, I would die for that. And, he, and you got the offer? You don't even want it. Um, and that was a real crossroads for me. There was that one moment of, of whoa, this is cool. And... I think I could have been, you know, I'm, I'm good at um, thinking on my feet. I'm, I think I'm a reasonably good uh, speaker. I'm not easily uh, flapped. So I, I thought, oh, this, this could be uh, a life. And I chose, I, I re- recognized, look, this is better. This is a better opportunity for someone else. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this. I shouldn't take this chair. And I was right in that. But there was a moment where I was like, oh, you know, sometimes your life opens a door and you're like, if you just take one step, everything will be different. And it's hard to evaluate whether it would be better or worse, but um, I, I, I sort of, that door was open and I pulled it shut again. Um, but, you, you know, in answer to your question, it's there, there's not enough evidence to say whether I would have been a good lawyer. And I, I think I'll be pretty bad at the solicitor stuff, but probably i guess i would have been pretty good at the courtroom stuff yeah well i think there's some level of um being able to translate how am i trying to say this um the ability to to talk to not only people but to a jury like there's some element there that does i mean i i kind of i don't want to say shredded you earlier but i told you you didn't sound like a lawyer to me and i that is a deep compliment but i as we talk here <laughs> I don't know if uh, there's something there. So I, I, I do follow this, but I, you know, like I waffle on it. So by the end of the show, you might be a lawyer. I'm not sure if I want to say <laughs> that or not, but, uh, okay. So we're marching forward. We're getting closer to the current day. 
But I'm sure through that process of getting the next, uh, I mean, you've got 10 out total, so you got the first, we got the first couple under our belt. There has to be a world of tribulation in there that each one of these stories has to run and go up and down for you. And you, uh, I don't want to say live and die with each one of these stories, but I'm sure each one of them has their own arc in your life and, and importance. Oh, no, that's a very, you're absolutely right, and that's very intuitively correct. You know, that, that when I look back now on the books, you know, I don't reread them. Sometimes I'm, I'm asked to reread them for the purposes of adapting them to, uh, you know, f- film or TV or, or, you know, overseeing someone else who's adapting them for film or TV. So there's, there's projects of that kind that are going on. But I would never voluntarily reread my earlier books, not because I think they're not good, but because it's just, it, it's just, it's just weird. It's sort of like going back in a time machine and kind of dating your ex-girlfriend or something. It's, it's just it's something you just wouldn't choose to do. And, and yet when I think about the writing, I remember the writing of the books even more profoundly than the books themselves. You know, I remember where I was, the person I was, the priorities I had going into a book. And, you know, one of the, one of real, one of the real sort of, apparent ways that this can be evidenced in reading, you know, in this case, my books, is that in the early, maybe sort of three or four or five books, the stakes are attached to the protagonist, who is typically kind of a solo agent. You know, he, 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 he or she is a, a, an individual who doesn't have family or has jettisoned themselves from their family. And so, the stakes are, will they survive? Will they make it out? You know, the worst case scenario is, what if I die from a, you know, from a narrator point of view? And then, in my real life, I get married, I have children, and that shifts. And my life becomes relatively far less important uh, and of lesser value than the lives of my children and my family and my wife. And so... The stakes in my in the thrillers become um, more about someone else. It's about a protagonist who's concerned deeply about the well-being of someone else who's been who is in danger or uh, uh, or perhaps has been harmed or is missing. And so, you know, as obvious as that ought to have been to me, it took you know readers to point out to me. And the readers readers are always the best because they'll point out to you like, oh, you you realize what you're doing here, right? And you're like, oh my God, no, I didn't. Thank you. Um, but you know, they they'll they point it out to me. It's like, oh, you you had a shift here for, you became a father and now you're writing these books about families or marriages. And they were absolutely right. And so it's one of the one of the wonderful byproducts of being um, a career novelist or, or writing a bunch of books is that, yes, you tell stories, but in the telling of the stories, you tell a different story about yourself and your deep preoccupations. And some of the time, some of the time, those deep preoccupations are are hidden even from yourself. So you mentioned getting married and having children. How has that, obviously it's changed the story, right? And how you project and how you write, but has it changed how you write? Like, do you still blo- do you still block out periods of time during the day, or is it just as as you can squeeze it in, or how's that look today? It remains fairly uniform. You know, I I, um, um, my, I work in my house. I'm now sitting in my home office on the third floor um, in downtown Toronto, and so my kids, um, their school is their schools uh, are within easy walk to, walking distance of here. So the, the mornings are very probably recognizable to many of the people listening now. Um, you know, you get up, have the coffee, get the kids ready uh, for school, off they go, and then you go to work. In my case, the work is, you know, straight up the stairs. I don't um, shower or uh, exercise or do anything in the morning, aside from making, you know, lunch and breakfast for my kids. I go straight to the office because I find um, – that's the sort of uh, uh, you might not feel like it, but it it's the most productive part of the day for me. I feel like I can I can get back into the book or the story wherever I am and get out my words. 
and and I'm a very I try to be when I'm in the middle of a project quite strict about my word counts and what I'll do is is demand of myself look you need to get a, whatever the word you know whatever the the minimum is somewhere between 800 and 1200 words a day and if I don't hit that count um, I don't get lunch so I have to get my thousand words, and if I get the thousand words by eleven thirty, okay, well you can go downstairs and make yourself lunch. And if you don't, you're gonna, you know, you better because you're gonna get, you're gonna go hungry. And then in the afternoon, it's sort of like you know, going out groceries, uh, those kind of regular things. So it's it's quite um, um, uniform and kind of work a day, punching the clock. Not necessarily by design, but I find that that is, the, for me anyway, it's the most helpful way to do it. Because if I had to wait for, um, you know, feeling inspired or something like that, it, nothing would ever get done. I understand. That's why I do the show live, right? Because it, everybody else is doing podcasts in the world. But if I didn't do it 9 o'clock Eastern Tuesday nights, it may not never, happen. It, it, may, <laughs> it may never get done again. Like, right. <laughs> no, I'm with, I hear that. May never. Like, yeah. Whatever. Okay, we'll get it. Well, yeah, we'll do this Friday. It's okay. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so let's, let's talk about The Resident now. This is the, the latest one. It came out in September. So when did you finish, like, writing that? I guess we're going to start with these technical questions, and then you can yeah. sell me here pretty good. Uh, because I think you can, I mean, the story, we've been kind of teasing it, and I wanted to save it for the end because I wanted everybody to come through this process with us to get here and then get into the story. Because I think that's where the, the meat of this interview is. Is the, we're saving it for the end. So, how long ago did you actually finish it? Because I'm sure it had to go to the editor and get printed and all this other stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, so well, you know, in it was it was in terms of a a, a novel published by a big commercial press, it was pretty quick, and it was pretty quick because um, um, there was an interest in the on the publisher's side to published the book prior to the U.S. election. And and um, so, going back, I, I probably started the book um, around, probably like, you know, sort of 2017. Um, and by started, I mean, you know, sort of like, oh, wait, I kind of bumped into the origin, the, 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 the real historical uh, pieces that I became fascinated with. Um and then would have submitted and finalized the manuscript, you know, maybe, well, not that, you know, maybe sort of seven or eight months ago from where we are now. So, again, in publishing terms, that's fast. That's kind of like, you know, that's electric. Um, and the the interest in, in it, you know, because it's about, and we haven't sort of you know, said too much about this, but it, because it is about um, the White House and, and about a uh, you know, an evil entity perhaps residing in the White House, that there was a, a marketing interest in, oh, let's do this before uh, November 3rd. Yeah, and that's why you're here tonight, because I had an interest in it. But I, I had an interest back in September. When I first seen it, I'm like, I love it. I don't normally interview fiction authors because I find it hard for me to ask the questions I want to ask and you keep be able to sell your book. Right. Because I want to know how it ends, even though I kind of have an idea how yours ends, but I don't. But I, you know, I, I kind of drill down. That's what I want to know. And uh, for me to remain faithful for to, to you and sell your book, I, that's kind of also why we started slow and kind of built up to this point. So maybe we run out of time before I have to ask you. So how does this one end? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, for my listeners out there, tell 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 them about the resonance. Give them the full uh, whatever it is. I don't want to say soundbite because that's not true. You you probably can do a much better job of selling it than I can. Oh sure. So um, the resonance is a, a a ghost story set in the White House, and it is one that's based on uh, real, true historical events, specifically those uh, relating to the Franklin Pierce administration of 1853 to 1857. Franklin Pierce is, uh, or was, um, among the, the I'm going to be generous to him here, um, among the least well-regarded American presidents, <laughs> and certainly among the most overlooked. You know, I had never, for example, heard of Franklin Pierce before I 
uh, bumped into him in my research into into haunted houses. But the residence is about Franklin Pierce, his his one term uh, administration, and his relationship with his first lady and wife Jane Pierce, who both of whom suffered an unimaginable series of losses before their uh, moving into the White House, specifically the loss of all three of their children, the the last of whom, uh, Benny, was 12 years old, and he died and was the sole fatality in a bizarre train derailment that occurred just uh, weeks before the Pierce inauguration. And it was on that train, Pierce and Jane were on the train uh, with Benny, and they lost their their last living child. So they both moved into the White House suffering unimaginable grief. And Jane um, moved into the second floor residence, which was, you know, at that time the White House was only... Um, uh, Two floors high, and, and, and uh, but it was on the second floor that the that the first family would have resided. She moved into her uh, rooms and refused to come out. She did not do any of the normal social, um, you know, the teas, the meetings, the dinners that would normally have been served by first ladies. Instead, she spent her time writing letters to her dead son Benny in which she pleaded with him to return to her. And according to her letters, he did. Not in a ephemeral, phantasmical form, um, but according to her letters, in material form, he came to her um, in her room in the White House, appeared, moved out of the corner of the room, came to her at the side of the bed, stroked her, comforted her, and that is, along with a few other facts, but that primary correspondence that is known to history and, and, and verifiably so, is the is the way into what I write as um, launching from those facts a um, a ghost story slash horror horror novel about about the Pierce administration, what the Pierces endured in the White House, and what they brought to the White House in a supernatural sense that may be with us today. You know, I was just thinking this and one of my chatters popped it up there. It sounds like Mary Lincoln. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, Pierce took office in 1852. I think I seen that 53 somewhere. I mean, yeah, 53. Yep. Okay. Close enough. I, not bad for not writing mm-hmm. it down. Recalling from earlier today. So from 52 to 65, when Lincoln was assassinated, that's a 13-year period. I know the Lincolns lost uh, one or two children while they were there, and then we have this one who was on the way there. And it just, I mean, that that energy, being the paranormal guru guy that I am here at this point, that, that sorrow, that deep loss has to leave a horrible, I mean, I just can't imagine losing a child, I guess is the clean way to put that. Well, yeah. I'm trying to be the, not be a, but be the public figure at that point. Or, yeah. uh, absolutely. No, it, it is, um, it, it's almost unimaginable to, and then imagine then, on top of that, the impact that would have on uh, a marriage, and a marriage that is expected to be very public. When one of the, one of the members of it, Jane, um, with very good reason, refused to play the public game. So Franklin was was very alone, and and that was why. And this is a this is one of the really fascinating aspects of the of the novel in my research that I I was surprised by. It was at that time fairly regular practice for uh, presidents, senators, congressmen who had wives that were ill or otherwise indisposed or or batch for bachelors who didn't have wives to um uh uh hire the services of a s- substitute and so a substitute would have been a, a woman who would perform the role of a public wife uh but who was not that man's wife and franklin pierce had a substitute jane chose her herself uh it was abby her uh, cousin, 
uh, and longtime child since their friends since childhood, and they were known to be very similar women, very similar in their appearance. Uh, Abby a little bit more um, lively. Jane was always ill and sickly and and uh, you know depressed. Um, so Abby was almost a kind of a perkier, livelier, more appealing version of his own wife. And she resided, uh, not didn't reside in the White House, but resided nearby and f- would attend events with Franklin. So that would, you know, from a psychological point of view, that would be a further complication. Here's a man who's lost his child, all of his children. His wife is not available to him in any emotional uh, sense. And... And yet here's this woman who is sort of a doppelganger for his wife who is attending fun, you know, candlelit social functions with him. Uh, just a bizarre, it's almost a sort of a, uh, you know, um, a surreal dream. And But that was all sort of, this is again all, all part of the historical record. And Jim, just as an aside, just because I don't want to, um, you mentioned earlier about about Mary Lincoln. And I think it's what one of the other things, and this gets me quite excited, nerdily, uh, it, about in my, in my research is that so the so Benny Pierce, twelve years old, dies in the train accident I've mentioned, and he is, according to Jane, brought back from the dead. You have with the Lincolns only two administrations later. You have Willie Lincoln, the exact same age as Benny, twelve years old, dies in the White House. Mary Lincoln is known on the historical record to have conducted uh, more than one seance attempting to make contact with Willie. And it's there's you know pre- prevalent historical uh, supposition that Lincoln himself was present at, at at least some of those seances. You have a few administrations later, during the Taft administration, 1909-1913, um, Multiple accounts of people who lived and worked at the White House at that time seeing and encountering terrifying um, encounters with a young adolescent boy, roughly 12 years old, who they called the thing. And Taft was so troubled by this and so distracted that he issued a memo saying, no one can talk about the thing anymore. We agree. We will not talk about it anymore. It's It's almost like he perhaps himself encountered the thing this this recurring uh, supernatural appearance of uh, in this case a 12 year old boy but there are others other figures within white house lore that repeats itself uh, was completely surprising to me and fascinating you know it makes me think of a story that i was told here on the show uh anyways I was told here on the show, I was going to tell you how long ago it was, but it's been a couple of years. I had former Secret Service agent John Carmen on who was telling me about a Secret Service agent in the basement of the White House who pulled down and shot at something that wasn't there. Wow, I have not heard that. That's amazing. I'll have, to dig, I'll have to dig that up and send it over to you. If I don't, remind me because I forget these things. I say a lot sure. of things I'm going to do, but because he, <laughs> he casually dropped it right before the show. Hey, I've got the best ghost story you've ever heard. Now, being, I'm, you know, I'm in the paranormal and I, you know, or into the paranormal stuff and I, people tell me that a lot. And then he proceeded to tell me that story. I mean, that's, just, that's the punchline of the story. I mean, he went well, into better detail than that, but, um, yeah, that is probably the greatest ghost story I've ever been told. And that is. T- as we bridge the gap from that was like in 1980 ish, somewhere in there to back to the day, but you know, as we're sitting here. Makes me really. I mean, I wish I could get you know full access, but of course I know that's never going to happen. But just be fun. Yeah, that is. I. I. That is. I, I'll hound you for that because uh, uh, that's it. That's that's an amazing aspect. It, it, it's it, again. It's not. Uh, um, um, you know, sort of the digger. The, the the deeper you dig into, but you know, you get beyond the sort of the touristy brochure lore of the White House ghosts. You know, here's you know Lincoln's ghost and stuff. Um, you you do uncover a, a very rich and I think very real history of of genuine people encountering just very strange stuff in that building. 
So let's rewind the tape because before we got way too heavy, which is fine, but it, it really did. You said you're looking at ghost stories. So were you out looking for a, a ghost story to write about, or were you just generally fascinated by ghost stories, especially since it's that time of year where we can talk about these things? <clears throat> well, you know, a couple <laughs> years ago when I when I stumbled on no, I, it was it was just recreational uh, rabbit holing on the internet. You know, I, I'm perhaps like a lot of people you know listening now. Um, you know, you spend time online following your sort of minor obsessions and for me you know uh uh, i might start off like checking tomorrow's weather and i end up invariably looking at you know recent sasquatch videos or uh you know ufo ufo abduction accounts or haunted houses you know that's where i kind of my interests lead and it was during one of those time-wasting evenings that i um you know, sort of was digging a little bit deeper into um, American haunted houses. I was sort of like, what's the most haunted house in America? And yes, there's this place, that place. And one of my searches led me to the White House. I was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before. And that's when I discovered the Pierces and Jane Pierce's letters in particular. And that was when I knew, okay, hold on. I've never heard of this before. And what an interesting that the characters of of um, the Pierces, these people who had lost everything, and then more or less were immediately vaulted into this position of great responsibility and power, just when the country was was you know being tugged and torn over the you know, the question of, of of slavery and how to resolve it or not. Um, was just sort of was so dramatic and interesting to me that uh, I thought oh, I went immediately from oh I'm just wasting time to I think this is a novel. It is. I mean, obviously it is. It obviously played out in your head. I'm still. Fa- I mean, there's so many things whistling through my head at this point. It makes it hard to think and ha- have this conversation. Probably another reason I wanted to wait and get into this a little bit more. But of course, as you develop this. How I mean, you obviously started with a based on true story. I mean, obviously these events happened. How hard did it become to then? I don't want to say ramp it up, but that's the only fa- the only phrase that comes to mind, and turn it into a work of fiction with some truth in it. How how hard is that for you to walk that line until you don't walk that line anymore? Well, one of the benefits of um, dealing with the Pierces, yes, they were they were you know Pierce was an American president, so on that level, you know, that's pretty rich history. It's it's well uh, documented. Uh, there's fame and a, a recognition involved in that. But um, I had the benefit of him being probably the least known American <laughs> president, and so there was a space. There were spaces there for me to um, enter. Uh, into the account, fictionalize, um, and you know the novel. The residence is quite, you know, it, it, it's quite clearly fictional. I mean, the, the things that I have happened, many of the things I have happened are clearly fantastical. Um, but I wanted it to to be, um, you know, to not divorce itself too much from the historical record and from just just plausible reality. And so that was the that was the balance was. Yes, respecting the historical re- record. Yes, being true to who these characters were or how, or how they were appreciated or what we can know about them now. And at the same time, telling a gripping, um, uh, scary uh, ghost story and, and, a, and a horror story and a thriller um, that, doesn't, that doesn't divorce too much from, the, from you know, again, from, from what is known. And being respectful. Um, not in the sense of, of uh, uh, you know, um, laying flowers at the grave of the Pierces, but being respectful in the sense of um, of their characters and and seeing how those characters would have played out in a situation that would have been, again, um, very, very dark and very difficult for them to have endured. And so, so it was, you know, I would, my advice to other, you know, writers who might be, out there who are like, oh yeah, I want to write a historical fiction novel, is, you know, my advice would be, choose someone who's famous, but not that famous. <laughs> because it's into those spaces that you can, you know, create your own story. 
Yeah, cause I, I was sitting here thinking about my friend of the show, Bill O'Brice Jr., who played in the uh, Lincoln vs. Zombies movie. The, oh, yeah. The, the spoof of the other one, the Zombie Hunter one. Yeah. And um, good friend of the show. I mean, loves the show. He's probably, he'll, he'll probably be listening to this one uh, whenever he, well, especially since they're not doing much. Uh, I think he told me they were starting to pick back up. But anyways, not to get off into that side tangent about him, but... I know when I first watched that, I mean, as much as you try to quote unquote relax and enjoy the show, you know, you know, too much history and it becomes such a argument with yourself like that's just not right. Let alone the fact he's chasing zombies around, right? Like, <laughs> right. like there's that part of people that just can't let that go. I mean, the rest of the story's fine, but the, you just need it, you know, like just need to be a little more historically accurate. While chasing the zombies, <laughs> which don't right. have any place in it, uh, which is, it's got to be—I mean, that's where the, the fine line comes that, I, that I'm interested in trying to flesh out and figure out. Because, but I mean, like I said, I did enjoy the movie, and I do enjoy Bill. But there's those moments; it's like that isn't right. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you—you know—it's interesting. I think you get it—it's—it's it's odd because you get that—that um, that breadth. Or that opportunity to have Lincoln, you know, beheading vampires because Lincoln is so much more iconic than, say, Franklin Pierce. You know, he's so much more well-known. He's so much more important. Uh, he's so much more mythical in the American uh, understanding as well as the American imagination that you can conceivably have him be a vampire hunter. Whereas if, if I were to write Franklin Pierce Vampire Hunter, it'd be like, first of all, who's Franklin Pierce? I mean, it, it, it wouldn't work. So it's almost like you have to calibrate um, lesser-known people. Lesser-known people you can tell more personal, private stories about because we don't know their private life. Whereas bigger figures like Lincoln, you if you're going to tell a truly fictional story about Lincoln, I think you might as well bring in zombies and vampires because they are so well-known. Yeah. Such a fine line. Okay, so that that's the resident. It's out available via your website. I'm assuming everywhere else, right? Amazon, all sure. Some places. Yep, all those places. I also think I see that, that was available on Audible, which might <coughs> be a way to go for some people. I know that, especially since I'm doing an audio based show, that might be something you might want to check out. And no, I don't have the shameless Audible plug at this point. <laughs> Just go go listen to another. I mean, they're out there. Go go find it for free. I'm sure people have it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, the Audible download a free book deal, not just skimming the backside of the internet for his book. Not saying no. that. No, 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 that no. wasn't what I said. So calm down, everybody, especially you. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we we uh, we talked about all this writing stuff, and up in my chat room it popped up. Well, you didn't ask him about writer's block. What do you do? Because I mean, obviously you're saying you're trying to get eight to a thousand words before lunch. And uh, what if it just doesn't come, and how do you get out of that and break that cycle? Well, you know, this might be, um, you know, this is might be sort of, it sounds easy, but it, so this might be unhelpful advice, but, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I find on the occasions where I'm having a tough time with it, I, I, I find it helpful to, re- helpful to remind myself that there is no such thing as, writer's block you know that that is if you went if you were like suffering writer's block and you went to your doctor and you had a doctor and said oh my god this seems like a very serious case let's get an mri done and you had a full body mri you know writer's block would not show up right it's not like oh there it is i see it it's there right you know hiding behind your spleen there's your writer's block it is it is something that it is that something we tell ourselves to explain perhaps something else and so for me, some of the helpful you know, workarounds or, or ways to kind of diminish the, the oppressive weight of what we might assign the name writer's block is to just is to not be where we are when we're suffering it. So if you're like, OK, here I'm at the writer's table, you know, the kids are asleep or whatever, um, husband's at work and I'm going to do this thing now and it's not working. Don't sit there and kind of wait for magic to strike. You know, get up, get your, bring your notebook and a pen and go for a walk. Go for a walk around the block. Um, or go to your bookshelf and pull off randomly, more or less, 
a book that you have already read and that you know that you like and open it up at a random midpoint mid page and read a paragraph something that's sort of like oh oh it, it sort of it it disrupts the brain from thinking i can't do this i can't do this i'm blocked and it kind of instead of trying to solve that or cure it you say okay fine you can think that i'm going to go for a walk okay you can think that i'm just going to read a page of this book from a, a writer that i love and the brain gets distracted too and stops complaining and you you have your own thoughts and so that would be my kind of therapist's advice for writer's block. A, remind yourself, this isn't real. B, do something else. And C, um, your brain wants to tell the story. You, like you, if, you're, if you're setting out to write a book, you know that this is something you want to do. You know that you have an interest in this. So when you feel those, those impediments, it's, it's not about like, oh, I can't do this or I have a block. It's about your brain is just kind of messing with you. So you just have to relax, do something else, and then it'll get back. It'll sort of find the rails again. So as I look at the clock, we've got just about four minutes left. And I've got to tell you, fun little story. I don't know where this is going, but, you know, it seems appropriate at this point as we're talking about uh, historical works of fiction that weave history and stuff together. Um Obviously, one of my favorite movies of all time is National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. And I, I, mm. I, I still swear, every time I bring this up, that's just a documentary of his life. There's nothing fictional about this. It's just how that guy lives. <laughs> yeah. We, we, like, people are like, no, that's okay. I'm like, no. I'm pretty sure if we actually followed him around, that's how that guy lives. And, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we were, the family is in Philadelphia, and so I pushed the kids up together to get their picture taken with the Liberty Bell, and then I decide I want one with the Liberty Bell as well. Yeah, I get a selfie. And I look over and say, I'm going to slide under the bottom there and take a picture. Which the, out of the large security guard, you know, because, you know, they got this thing roped off, you can't get within five feet of it on any side, said, don't even think about it. <laughs> and I said... I'm not going to touch it. I'm just going to take a picture up under. And he looks at me and says, don't even think about it. And at that point, I felt the need to leave the building. <laughs> because. Do you think if you, if you had sort of scuttled under there, do you think he would have grabbed you by the ankles and pulled you out? Yeah, without question. Yeah. I wouldn't even probably got that far before. Right. I probably wouldn't even hit the floor before I was hitting the floor. <laughs> I get the feeling like um, just based on that tone he, he's probably tired of everybody's joke I'm sure everybody has a joke like that I'm sure um, but I think you could have smiled because obviously I, don't, I mean it is probably high enough that I could have fit under it but I'm not exactly sure that I could have right right. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not going to be the guy that has this uh, national relic land on me because I was trying to be no. cute you don't want to be that guy. No. Yeah. Like, well, I guess maybe it would crush me and maybe it'd be okay. <laughs> like, I wouldn't have to deal with it. Like, you know, I'm sure that thing weighs a few pounds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, hey, I appreciate you and I appreciate the story. I'm glad that you found it and brought it back so we could all kind of talk about it again. Oh, well, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate this. And that's uh, Andrew, uh, oh, Pryor dot com. Jeez, such yeah, Andrew, a, such a Piper. Piper yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> such a complex website and such a hard name to pronounce. I still butchered it. That's good. <laughs> well, are you working on another book? I have started. Yes, I've started into a new book, and then there's a couple of, um, um, as I mentioned, sort of TV and film projects that are percolating based on some previous books so yeah jumping around between projects so um it's busy you know it, that's one of the benefits of being a writer in a pandemic is that you know <laughs> you get to do the work so i see the question in my chat room i look at the clock see we've got like 50 seconds have you seen a ghost yourself never never but um I give a lot of, historically at least, I used to give a lot of readings and a lot of people would come to them and would tell me ghost stories. And uh, people have told me so many ghost stories, I'm a believer for sure. Good. Hey, whenever you get one of these things finished up and you want to come talk about it, you know where to find me, right? 
Thanks so much, Jim. I will. Yeah. All right. Have a good evening. You too. And there we go. Another good good one in the books there. Bad pun, good one in the books. Yeah, there you go. I'm looking forward to next week with um, live predictions next week. The following week, we're going to get into nuts and bolts marketing. Um, I think that's the following week. I shouldn't really talk about these things that I don't have my book in front of me. I'll talk. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 